Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to MitoAction's monthly expert series. I'm Kyra Mann, CEO of MitoAction, and I'm honored to be your host today. Today's presentation will be recorded and available on the MitoAction website in the coming days, as well as on our podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. Today, we'll discuss a difficult but necessary topic, grief and mito. As we head into the holidays, it's important to the MitoAction team that we provide a safe space for our community to have these conversations and for each and every member of our community to know they have a system of support as we all navigate through difficult times. So today, we'll hear from three incredible individuals as they share their journey with grief, grief from the loss of a child, and the grief associated with progression of mitochondrial disease. Joining us today is Jessica Fine, Adam Johnson, and Becky Sansbury. Jessica is the mother of three children, one of whom, Dahlia, had Murph syndrome. Having lost her parents, sisters, and teenage daughter, she's a reluctant expert in grief. Jessica writes the Grace and Grief blog for Psychology Today, her memoir, Breathtaking, Rare Grief in a World of Love and Loss, will be published in 2024 from Beerman House Press. And her podcast, I Don't Know How You Do It, launches in January. Jessica is also a member of the MitoAction Board of Directors. MitoAction recently renamed our Wish Trip program to honor Jessica's daughter, Dahlia, and is now named Dahlia's Wish. We are thrilled to offer once-in-a-lifetime wish trips to our Mito families while honoring Dahlia's life. Adam is a mitochondrial disease patient and self-proclaimed dadvocate, a dad first and advocate second. He is a lifelong educator who lost his career after receiving a life-altering diagnosis in 2019. Feeling alone, afraid, and helpless, he sought connection with others and began advocating through social media, websites, and blogs. Most recently, Adam started and hosted a podcast called Parents is Rare, part of MitoAction's Energy in Action podcast. He also hosts a MitoAction monthly support call for men in the Mito community. His overall motivation stems from the goal to own his story while supporting others along the way, including his children, family, the rare disease community, and other parents facing similar challenges. Becky Sansbury specializes in crisis care for individuals and organizations. After serving as a hospice chaplain for 14 years, she published After the Shock, Getting You Back on the Road to Resilience When Crisis Hits You Head On. Becky provides compassionate perspectives and practical tools designed to help people stabilize and move forward even in difficult times. Both a speaker and consultant to organizations such as Ronald McDonald House Charities and Blueprint Medicines, Becky also provides emotional support within the rare disease community. Please join me in welcoming Jessica, Adam, and Becky. Thank you so much, Kira. I have the distinct privilege of getting to go first. Now, when you are with such notable company, You do that knowing that regardless of what you do or say, there's a time for redemption by your colleagues who will come along and provide even more information and insights. But it is definitely an honor to be with you and the Mito community today. I rest on a quote that Adam used 
when he was publicizing this particular broadcast uh, on Twitter. And he said, the only thing universal about grief is that it is universal. And if I might add my own tidbit to it, it is also that part of life that is universal in experience and universal in avoidance. We come to this place in life that some have written about, some have spoken about, and yet in our own ways, each of us experience, sometimes similar to what we read or hear, but yet sometimes caught in our own space of grief, which may indeed feel puzzling, frustrating, and because it is ours, isolating. One of the things that makes this a confusing topic, even while so generalized and universal, is that we don't always have language or context for anything beyond what we understand as grief when there has been a physical death. And obviously, that is a massive place of grief and deserves great respect and understanding. But so do those other griefs that are part of life. And we don't always give them their due. It's like we give grief by death a capital G and all of those other ones a small letter G. They somehow just don't rank right up there. But what we have seen as we walk with each other through the dark times of grief is that we should not judge or categorize the aspect of grief as it impacts each of us. So what indeed are some of those areas of life where we have little letter grief? Think about the impact of disruption in our lives. And with Mido, goodness knows, our plans, our hopes, our assumptions about what life will be physically for us, for our families, for our goals, what we anticipate. When those get impacted, then indeed feelings of grief can overwhelm us or they can sort of ride quietly like a ghost alongside us, haunting us and yet causing us to feel that somehow we should be handling this better. The grief that happens when someone else is impacted and we don't quite know how to make it better and yet we feel like we should. And in the midst of that, we find ourselves perhaps on the grief minibus of life. Minibus of life? Well, what would that be? Well, the picture that comes to me is we picture grief as, as I said, that death time or that horrible tragedy, which everybody would recognize. And yet not everybody does. And who are the passengers on that minibus? Well, we expect them to be crying, a general aura of sadness. But some of the things that we don't expect to be a part of grief or different aspects of grief in our lives are those other passengers on the bus, each one clamoring for a seat as the co-pilot. It may be anger. It may be anxiety. It may be fear. It may be a whole physical 
breakdown, an emotional breakdown that keeps us from coping well, the inability to put our thoughts together clearly, to express ourselves clearly. And here we come to one of the big challenges with grief, because so often we don't have language, or if we do, we can't find the right words. So we go back to those patterns which were instilled in many of us as children when it came to any aspect of hurt. Maybe you heard it. I did. There, there, honey. Now, don't you cry. It's going to be all right. And so often in an attempt to make someone else feel better in their time of grief, or perhaps we're doing it to ourselves, it's the hand pat. And now, now, don't cry. It's going to be better. And yet something deep within us or within the other person to whom we might be saying this realizes that those words are hollow. And perhaps they are as much to make the speaker feel good as the person who's listening. We don't think of it that way. But if we get really honest, perhaps that's where our discomfort comes. And those voices on the minibus are shouting at us yet again. When we think about grief within a a medical situation, we think about also those multiple griefs, the griefs for uh, what's going to happen financially to us, what's going to happen to the other people in our lives, what's going to happen with work. And each of those, as they hit that disruption of this situation, suddenly are crumbled into that place of grief. One of the things that then happens unintentionally, I'm sure, is that we start to judge the levels of grief and the qualifications for who gets to grieve and how much they get to grieve. I saw this a lot in the first year of the pandemic where people were saying, um, you know, well, I don't know why he's carrying on so much. He's so upset. Because he just, you know, can't go take a trip like he wants to, or he can't get out and eat at restaurants, but I've got this going on. Likewise, I saw it with people who were suffering, who were grieving the changes that were taking a place so tumultuously all around us. And that judging level of grieving happens when we don't understand all those small G griefs in life. One of the places it can really trip us up is in that area of ambiguous grief. And I believe there's going to be a bit more of a discussion of that in our conversation uh, throughout this webinar. But just to give a basis for it, think about the word ambiguous. You know, it's hard to classify, clarify. <laughs> it is out there. And there are those griefs and those feelings of grief that we can't quite put our finger on. And yet we know it's there. We know it hurts. We know it's disruptive. We know that it is affecting our lives and the lot, our life and the lives of others. And yet in the midst of that, we just can't quite nail it down. And frankly, nailing it down is something that we like to do. We feel better if we've got a context and a plan. And we appreciated so much the work of Dr. Kubler-Ross back in the 1960s when she gave us what's commonly known as the stages of grief. Now, what most people don't realize is that she wrote those uh, for a, a context for people who were going through a deep illness or an illness that might lead to their death. 
She didn't write those in the context for the people who were grieving outside of that. All of that doesn't really matter because she gave us some language and a base and that helped. But where we got stuck in that is that it became a box with steps in it. And somehow we were supposed to make each step work properly, check it off. And suddenly there was a time frame, a way to do it. And we were done. Life doesn't work that way and neither does grief. And so one of the most helpful things we can do for ourselves and others is dismantle that box, dismantle those assumptions, have some language of the things that can happen to us physically, emotionally, spiritually, practically out in the world. But don't say this grief is good, bad, healthy, unhealthy, being done the right way in the right timeline. By six weeks, you should do this. By six months, you should do this. Otherwise, you're in a pathological grief state. We have medicalized something that is a normal part of life. And if you think about it with other normal parts of life, we don't say that you're doing it all wrong if you don't do it the exact same way as someone else. And so in the midst of this, we look at the realization that, as Megan Devine and others have said, there is simply no right or wrong way as we deal with all of those little griefs. And as we look at this in a bigger context of the Mito community, What we want to do now is as we unwrap this package of grief, to look at the various elements inside of it, to, as strange as it seems, to normalize it within our human experience, as uncomfortable as it may be, and as ill-equipped as we sometimes feel. We find within ourselves as human beings the capacity to feel even when it feels bad, we find the capacity to comfort and with our tidbits of life experience or education or guidance for from somewhere else beyond ourselves, we find those ways to guide ourselves through the dark night of the soul. And so as we come together today, it's my privilege for us to share some thoughts and experiences to look at some nagging questions and see where this opens up the bigger conversation that's certainly not all captured in a 45 or one 45 or 60 minute conversation. And yet it opens the door for possibility for each of us to realize that as much as we may not like it, grief is a healthy part of life allowing us to cope with the unimaginable in times that seem insurmountable in ways that are totally within us and sometimes beyond us. Kira, I am so glad that you have allowed me this time to introduce uh, this topic And now I believe it is time to bring in Jessica and Adam for a broader conversation on these items. Jessica, may I ask you, what do you wish someone had told you 
about this whole process. I wish somebody had told me about you. Let's start with that because <laughs> I don't know that I've ever nodded so much in a in a 10 minute or however long you were speaking, but every single thing you said resonated. There's so much that I I wish I had known. However, I'm not sure that if somebody had told me it would have really sunk in because this is unfortunately to a certain degree something that until you've experienced it the nuances are so impossible to fully internalize having said that there are certain things you talked about the minibus and i love the idea of the different passengers one thing about that minibus is there's no end to the ride there's no end point to grief it changes there are twists and turns and you know potholes and all that kind of thing, but there really is no end. And I have, you know, as, as Kyra explained in the introduction, experienced tremendous loss over the years, sudden expected my child, my sisters, you know, and, and each one really does take on its own shape. Um, In terms of one of the things that I really didn't know about, and that I wish I had and and I'm so grateful that we are sharing this with with people who might also not be aware of it is this idea of the small g kinds of grief because I only knew grief as the capital G if there's a hallmark card for it it's grief right we know about that and we know the things to do and we have the rituals and we know what we're supposed to say so when you're feeling these other feelings Surely that can't be grief. And for me, my daughter had Murph syndrome and she passed away one week after her 17th birthday. From age nine to 17, eight years of real disease progression, loss of ultimately all functionality, I felt like, well, we're not grieving. She's here. I will not grieve as long as I'm looking at my child. That to me felt like, that would be a horrendous thing to do. That would be a betrayal. How can I possibly grieve my daughter, our life, our future, anything when she is here? And so when I learned about ambiguous grief and realized, oh my God, that is exactly what I'm going through. That explains so much. It helped so much because now there was a word for it. There was a term. And when you can name something, you can start to figure out how to integrate it, how to let it live alongside you and not let it take over. It's a thing, ambiguous grief. Oh, okay. And so learning about that, and and I, I could have learned about it a little bit earlier. So I would say that's one of the big things I wish somebody had told me about. Adam, as you are living Uh, with mitochondrial disease. I want to combine two things that we said we would talk about because it seems like they might flow into each other. And to pick up on what Jessica so beautifully answered, thank you, about what you wish somebody might have told you related to grief feelings as a mitochondrial patient, but also where that affects things with anticipatory grief. Yeah, thanks. 
Thanks, Becky. I'd be I'd be glad to share a little bit about my perspective on that. And I echo Jesse's sentiments when she says that I, I wish I would have known you and about you. And, and same can be said for Jessica as well and the work she's doing, the mito community, all of those things right away from the get-go when mitochondrial disease rudely introduced itself to me in my life. Those would have been fabulous takeaways, fabulous, wonderful things to help me through this process because as so many others have mentioned this this common theme of it kind of even sounding funny to me that I didn't know that I was grieving when all of this started. And that was a huge wake up call for me. And there there were there were times when I just didn't even recognize it until, as you all mentioned, that beginning period of the pandemic. That was about a year into my diagnostic odyssey, a few months after my diagnosis. And it hit really hard when I was listening to a conversation between Brené Brown and David Kessler on Brené Brown's Unlocking Us podcast. And that's when it really hit hard. So, you know, that two and a half or so years ago timeframe for me and the discussion was, hey, everybody's hurting right now. Everybody's going through what they lost and having these conversations. And it's a difficult conversation to have. What What's happening here? And in that moment, I was thinking, geez, that's that's so right in terms of what's going on worldwide. And it it's a wake-up call for me too, because I thought and said, wait a second, in my life right now, nobody's died. What's what's happening here? And I, I come back to what David Kessler talked about, what is grief? And he he said, It's it's the death of something. It might not necessarily be the death of a loved one, although that is definitely a big part in that capital G grief. And for me, it was the death of, you know, relationships that I'd had in my career that Kyra mentioned that, you know, took this unfathomable turn and and turned into loss. It was the loss of that work that I had. And, you know, at that time, I didn't recognize it as grief until I sat in my backyard listening to this podcast. And it was this, oh, my moment. I I, I had this moment of realization and it was like so many other things where we don't recognize the loss until we lose something that we had. And we might not have thought about it before recognizing that feeling the grief was really helpful for me. And as I've continued through my disease and the progression, you know, Jesse talks so wonderfully about ambiguous grief and wrote about it beautifully as well. Some of those pieces have really helped me process and also helped me recognize that anticipatory grief that you talked about, Becky. I, I'm feeling this so much now as my condition advances. It, it becomes more and more challenging as things progress. I I have this anticipation, not only for what lies ahead for me, but as y'all mentioned, you know, and and most importantly for me, what's going to happen for my kids? What's going to happen for my family? And that's incredibly challenging. And for me, the anticipatory side brings me to the three things that I recognized about my grief as I was learning about it. I was grieving the life that I had before all of this, the life that I had at the time of my diagnosis, and the life that I thought I would have moving forward. And for me, I think that last part really lines up with the anticipation, the anticipatory grief side. Mm-hmm. Normally, I would send this back and forth between the two of you, but I'm going to break that pattern a little bit because 
we had, uh, in our planning for this session, we talked about the fact that talking to specifically your children uh, is, uh, it's a dubious honor that you have because it gives you a chance to, in a place that perhaps feels like there's almost no control, to have a bit of control. And as Jesse said, language is everything and framing and words and context. How has that been for you in talking with your family and especially the younger members of your family, Adam? It's one of the most challenging things, Becky, just like so many other aspects and discussions and conversations, you know, from the moment of diagnosis, my thoughts turn to what's this mean for my children? What's the emotional impact? What's the emotional toll? How am I going to explain these types of things? And in a way, I was able to take some of my background, which was in the world of education. I used to teach elementary school and then university students who were learning to be teachers and then graduate students who were currently teachers. And I was able to lean into a lot of those skills that I was able to develop through that process, which was incredibly helpful for me. So I try to do things like putting things into kid-friendly language, which comes fairly naturally to me with my with my background there. And an, another thing that I picked up on a little bit later in terms of talking with my children about their feelings was recognizing that I need to give myself and I need to give others permission to feel. And that came to me through the work of Dr. Mark Brackett and his book titled Permission to Feel. It's another thing where I have to learn about it being okay to kind of sit in that awkward phase, that awkward stage. And when it comes to doing that with the young children at the time, my my son was three, my daughter was 10. That's hard. (laughs) That's really tough. And uh, one one thing that I really leaned into in terms of giving myself and the kiddos that permission to feel and recognizing it was having discussions around that and kind of reading the room and seeing when they were ready to have those conversations, picking up on those little pieces, those moments that told me they were ready to explore things a little bit deeper and to take advantage of that. And that comes in different ways for a three-year-old who's now six and a 10-year-old who's now 13. Um, but those were really important moments for me to to be on the lookout for and then to take advantage and um, and jump in and have those conversations. And I guess one other point with that, Becky, would be it's good to let them see me grieve as well and work through these things um, because it, it, it's a natural thing that happens. It's something that we all do go through. And I need to set aside those feelings or expectations that I had set before, whether that was placed on me or I placed them on myself of, oh, yeah, just move along and move through a pat on the hand, like you were saying earlier, Becky. Yeah. And I will also say, I'm certainly no expert. I joked yesterday in social media that uh, this is the first time the word expert for the expert series and and my name have ever been put together in the same type of a sentence. So I'm trying to figure this out as we all go to, uh, but that's, that's some of my experience there. Yeah. Well, my experience is that this is not the last time expert and your name and this topic will go together. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. Jesse, uh, you have other children, uh, I believe, uh, and uh, your writing is also for those who are talking with their children uh, and everyone because it, it touches so many people. 
what would you speak to this whole concept of talking with children about grief? Yeah, thank you for the opportunity to speak to this in particular, because this is one of the things that I feel I got wrong. And what I mean by that is my husband and I were so focused on bringing joy to our daughter who had had so much taken away and bringing joy to the family. We had all had and life as we knew it, uh, to your point, was gone. We didn't know what was coming in the future. We had an idea. So we were so focused on we're going to make the most of every second and we're going to do this and we're going to do that to the point where without realizing it, my husband and I were putting on this strong, we got this kind of face, this attitude. And, you know, it's interesting because our pediatrician who cared for all three kids would say, well, you know, you got to talk to the others and you got to unpack this and you got to do that. And we were like, we're not doing that. Like we do not want to make that. Why should they have to suffer? And why should, boy, did we mess up? Because what happened was my older child, who is uh, two years older than Dahlia, so was a young teen at the time, came to us one night and really in the midst of a, of a, a personal crisis, sobbing and, and just so distressed and said, there's something wrong with me. We said, what do you mean? What do you mean there's something wrong with you? Well, I am so angry about what's happening to Dahlia. And I'm so scared and I'm so sad, but you guys are fine. You guys are going along. What's wrong with me? Why do I feel this way? And I thought, oh boy, it was like such a moment for me to realize, yeah. And and now, yeah, I mean, everything changed from then on with how we spoke with, with, with our kids about it. But you know, you, you think in every core of your being, you're doing the right thing by your kids. That's all you want to do. And we wanted to protect them. And we thought protecting was putting on that strong face when be, when protecting would have been giving a safe space and, and sharing again at age appropriate, um, in age appropriate ways, but inviting and sharing and being open and, and validating these feelings, which of course we then <laughs> scurried to catch up and doing, but mm-hmm. But it, it, it was way later than it ought to have been. Jesse, you reminded me of years ago, my dad had a, a life-threatening heart attack. And my two daughters were um, elementary age children. And uh, we lived 500 miles away from my parents. I'm an only child. And suddenly it was a scurry of get plane tickets, get to the city, get child care for my parents or for my children, because I was going to need to travel alone. I was a single mother. How is this going to happen? And so, man, I put on that chaplain. Let's get it done. March it right through. Get on the phone, blah, blah, blah. And I saw my younger daughter, who was about six or seven years old, suddenly burst into enormous sobs. And so I stopped quickly and I comfort her and I said, you know, honey, don't worry. Granddaddy's got good doctors taking care of him and he's going to be just fine. And she looked at me and she said, no, mommy, that's not why I'm crying. And I said, what? It was a head scratcher moment. And she said, I don't think you love granddaddy because you're not crying and you're not sad. And, and he's really sick. Wow. Mm. 
our children are sometimes our best validators for what what is allowed and what we are perhaps too worried, afraid, protective to utter. And yet it is the feeling, the emotion, and played out in the actions that their hearts instinctively know they need from us. Thank you both so much just circling around that whole area so beautifully. You used a term, Jesse, which is going to send us into our next part, and that is how do you unpack your grief? That's that's quite a vision. I mean, we're already on the mini. I don't know that we do our <laughs> unpack, but maybe we just get, get it out right there. Talk to us a little bit about that, if you would. Yeah, and I think a lot of the, is giving yourself permission to feel what you're feeling. And as you say, there's no right, there's no wrong. And one of the things that that also surprised me and that I have learned over time is that you can be going through the same loss as somebody else by relationship. Meaning, for example, when my sister died, you would think that that myself and my other sister, we were going through the same loss. We both lost our sister. When our daughter died, my husband and I, we both lost our daughter. But as you say, everybody's everybody's on their own journey. And there's no right and there's no wrong. So unpacking it means being able to really look within and to be able to give yourself the grace that you would give to the person that you love. What would you be doing? What would you want to allow for the people that you care about most, give yourself that grace. There's no right, there's no wrong. And so I think unpacking starts inside and it starts with being able to recognize the range of emotions, being able to recognize that no emotion is constant and, or or when an emotion isn't constant, that there's something wrong. For example, maybe you're not feeling in despair 24 seven. That's okay, right? Because maybe you say, well, wait a minute, what's what why aren't why aren't I? You know, or whatever the thing is. It's being able, I think, in general, to give yourself that that space and that grace to be able to to accept what you're feeling and to accept that those closest to you are on their own journey with it. Mm. And maybe, maybe parallel, maybe sometimes. You know, you're, you're riding together, but, but giving each other the right kind of space. All I could picture is that as grief is barreling down the road, one of the other emotions on the bus may be hanging on for dear life. Yeah. (laughs) Seeing the journey pushing forward the the way it is. Adam, what is unpacking like for you as a patient, as a dad, as a husband, as a human being it's a roller coaster becky there <laughs> it's 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 all over the place some days to to jesse's point some days it's going to look different than others sometimes it'll look different than others the amount of time that i spend working on it or thinking about it is going to vary and giving myself that permission to feel and recognizing that that's going to happen and that that's okay is a big first step for me I'll I'll tell you one specific way that I've taken to unpacking is a way that I didn't ever anticipate me going before. 
as I was early on in my diagnostic odyssey, before I figured out what was going on and got my diagnosis of mitochondrial myopathy, one of my doctors who'd been there by my side for 15 years as a primary care provider, which is fairly unheard of, uh, he had seen me through my life and now this journey. And he said to me at, at the time, man, you're been, you've been through the ringer. You're going through it. You're not sure what's happening here yet. What you're experiencing is leading to some impacts on your mental health. Your mental health is not the reason for what you are experiencing. And that's contrary to some advice or, or perspective that I've been given elsewhere that was really harmful for me. And he said, you might consider talking to somebody about this. And so I took the card from him and shoved it deep away in the furthest corner of my kitchen <laughs> under the biggest pile of papers, right? Like, I'm not doing that. <laughs> and uh, it took me a while to come around to it, you know, to the point where I, I called and I left a voicemail. That's good enough, right? Like, I'll, I'll forget about that for a while. Show up for my first appointment to focus on my mental health and that aspect to try to work some of these through some of these things, including grief and contemplate, do I just want to make a break for it right now? Right? <laughs> like get out of here. And I'm glad that I didn't because that's been really helpful for me. I I recognize that it's not a weakness to to say or to recognize myself that I need help, that I can say that, that I can do that, that I can mean that, and that I don't need to be ashamed of that. And that's the same, you know, kind of pathway, the same thing about about grief and you know, after that first step that I mentioned of recognizing that I was actually grieving, the next best helpful thing in helping me unpack has been to read about it or to listen to podcasts about it. And and then even if there's not a direct connection to my life, like Megan Devine's work in It's Okay That You're Not Okay, my loss that I'm experiencing and the, the grief that I'm experiencing is not a direct result of the loss of life of a loved one and I can take the perspective that she lends, which is so incredibly on point and helpful for me and relate it to my life. And that's been a big part of how I've been able to try to unpack things as I go. One of the things that you touched on and will lead us so beautifully into the next area of conversation really ties into making grief a a pathological uh, condition and that it is somehow some sort of mental health abnormality because sometimes grief causes us to act in ways that are so different from our normal self, <clears throat> what we expect of ourselves, what other people expect from us. Then sometimes it gets lumped into the category of depression or some other truly mental health category, mental illness category. And I think that this is something that indeed either or both of you may have experienced. So Adam, I'm going to let you rest a second, recollect your thoughts, and I'm going to jump back over to Jesse and to see if you have had any uh, context with this whole depression, sadness, what is it? and putting labels on it. Yeah. And, you know, <clears throat> thank you for that. I, uh, I have a, a, one of my closest friends lost her son uh, unexpectedly as a teenager. He passed away in his sleep. And mm-hmm. uh, I went, she's on another 
other side of the country. I went out there and her mother-in-law said to me, this was some weeks later, I think we need to hospitalize her. She's not getting better. She's just, you know, not functioning. We need to hospitalize her. And so that was my, so it wasn't personally where I've experienced this, this kind of conundrum that you speak about, but it was as witness to one of my closest friends. And I was so horrified that what she was going through that somebody very close to her would say, ah, this isn't, this isn't right. We need to hospitalize her by the same token. It to Adam's point, speaking with somebody who really can help suss out what is an area, when are you, you know, acting, feeling, whatever, something where you need extra kind of assistance. Like this is something different that we need to attend to as well. And so I think that it is really hard for individuals, no matter how much they care. I mean, this woman was just trying to help to be able to discern. And that's where it's so important to involve somebody who specializes in this very thing. Bravo. We are so uncomfortable and ill-equipped, at least in current culture, that's what I know, to, as you referenced earlier, live with the messy. Mm-hmm. Want tidied up. We want them on a time frame. If need be, we want them medicated. Yes. And outsource it. Outsource the, the problem. Right. <laughs> so that the rest of us can continue in the life to which we feel safe and comfortable and adjusted while this anomaly, this grieving person, whether it's big G, little G, whatever, we don't want to say it, but they're lovingly inconvenient in our lives. Mm -hmm. And yet we're concerned for them. We don't want them to hurt themselves, but we don't want them to hurt us either. So I think it's, it's so appropriate that you talk about the experience of your friend. Adam, you, you touched on this a bit. Is there any more that would be helpful for you, for us, to talk about before we move to our next topic? Well, if I can kind of jump on that, you know, that, that train there a little bit. Oh, sorry, we're on a bus. We're not on a train. But um, <laughs> if I can add a, a couple of thoughts around that, I would... You know, I would come back to your work, Becky, and, and after the shock. And one thing that's really been helpful for me as I continue to process all of this and experiencing the sadness and figuring out what's the sadness, what's the depression, and recognizing that others are dealing with things in their own way as well, even though it might be related to what I'm going through, the common responses to crisis for people in their various roles is really been a helpful thing for me to process myself. Um, It's most difficult for me when those in an inner or outer circle connection, as you talk about in your, in your work, Becky, who either feel too uncomfortable for that direct involvement, or they simply discontinue connection. And for me, that comes back to secondary losses that Megan Devine talks about and sometimes those can be just as, if not more difficult than the primary losses. 
maybe even those, you know, those dates or those reminders that pop up or something that you think sometimes those just in the moment type situations where you recognize that loss can be just so incredibly difficult and challenging and heart-wrenching all all at the same time. And when I when I try to kind of think through some of those things and process them, it's important for me to come back to the point that that's been made already, you're never done grieving. It's not something to be checked off. It's not a series of steps to be gone through. And as we talked about at the open there, it's a universal process, but it's not a universal process, right? Everybody goes through it, but there's no way to go through it. And I'm I'm finding it helpful for me to recognize that I should not suppress it and not live fully in it all of the time. What does that look like? I don't know. <laughs> uh, it's going to vary, but that's that's been something that I've really worked on um, when, when I'm trying to process and get the help that I need from my outside sources as well. And I think it's so important just to add on to that, because in this particular case, my friend said to me now, now a year into the loss of her child, she said to me, I feel like such a failure. I'm failing even yes. at this. I'm failing yeah. at grief. I'm still stuck in the same place I was. I'm, and I thought, my God, with everything else she's carrying now, she has to carry this a perception that she's failing at some yeah. Arbitrary kind of process that you know that has a beginning, middle, and end. So it's so important to understand that it is ongoing and it is just changing. One of the things these conversations can do, in addition to everything else uh, that's been highlighted about how helpful they are, necessary they are, the language concepts, etc. But is if we can start to deal with the judgment aspect of grief, our own, others, the judgment of which we may hear it, we may not like ourselves yeah. or even thinking it, but we know it's there. And then those subtle parts that sort of slide in and affect either our conversations, our relationships, or our own coping abilities. So if there's one thing I hope that everyone will take away is that this topic area and the living of it is truly a no judgment zone. And the only place where something that might even be considered a part of that would, would be appropriate is when it involves harm, either harm to self or harm to someone else. And then that goes into a different zone. But if it's simply different ways expressing, being, time frames, all of that, then we should be in a very much a no judgment place. But, you know, that's that's headspace. Mm -hmm. And we've got lots of headspace going on around this. And both of you um, have referenced that that you're married. Surely uh, all of this is talking with and being present uh, with a life or, uh, for some folks, whether it carries the, the title or the, the um, nomenclature of marriage, but those people who are closest to us, uh, those other adults, right, who are closest to us, um, what happens with you in those conversations? And I'd like to think about perhaps the rawest time uh, of maybe early conversations and then as conversations have evolved, Jesse, you're on the screen. Let's go start with you. 
Well, you know, this is such a, I mean, I'll, every time I keep saying that's such a good question. That's such a good yeah. question that everything you raise is so important. I think this comes back to this idea in a way of what I was saying earlier about you could be going through the same loss as somebody else on paper. It's the same, but it's quite different. And one of the things that my husband and I found challenging and that we needed to come up with a solution for was because what we were dealing with was so intense with our daughter's care, it was constant. It was 24-7, eyes on, ICU level support in the home for eight years. It was impossible to imagine that any of us would be in the place of intensity, worry, fear, sadness all the time. There are plenty of times when we were compartmentalizing and you know we had jobs, we had other kids, we were going out to dinner whatever. And so I think that the hardest thing with the spousal relationship for us was knowing when it was okay to bring up the heavy stuff, because what we didn't want to do, you know, here, somebody's doing fine. And maybe they're like, my husband's a teacher as well, maybe, you know, grading papers. And I'm like, we need to talk. And he's like, you know, so it's trying to um, have the, uh, again, I keep using this word, but the grace to understand that your partner might not be wanting to hear about it or to talk about it right then. And so we would ask, is this an okay time? And sometimes it was, no, you know what? I can't, not now. And it reminds me, I think maybe I came to that because when my sister died, my father would call me at work. She was 30 at the time. And so I was 27, I was working and he would call me at work in the middle of the day and like want to process and talk about it. And I was like, I'm at work. So unless you're in crisis, can we wait till five? Right. And so I think it's that understanding and it, and it feels uncomfortable because this is the person you're closest to. This is the person who's going through it with you. This is the person you need. You're relying on. This is your partner in this whole endeavor. And yet you need to be able to judge when it's or assess, I should say, with the no judgment zone, <laughs> assess when when is the an okay time for that person. And and hopefully there are other people in your life who um, you can go to and talk to as well so that you're allowing the, the, you're not having the relationship bear the, the full burden of what's happening. And pardon me, Adam referenced uh, a few minutes ago, an illustration that, that I use in my work. And if you picture an old fashioned bullseye, with that target, with the red hot center, that's that's the person who is, we'll just say, the griever for this context. And around them is that first circle, which is, as you both have referenced, your, your inner circle of support. And they get almost as many arrows pinged into them as the person in dead center. And yet they're expected to be constant because that's how we picture a target. And then outlying circle may be those more casual friends, uh, work colleagues, professional colleagues, or the medical community as they are uh, with you. And um, we have our sort of our positioned ideas of where people are supposed to be whether it's in reference to us or that person who is identified as the griever. Where we need to rearrange that whole image is seeing those lines as fluid 
rather than stationary. Because let's face it, that inner circle is going to wear out, burn out, exhaust out, get kicked out, as we used to say. (laughs) And we need to bring in that second string, but not see them as secondary, but first string for the moment. And I'm not a sports person, but the little bit I do understand is that when you bring in that second string person, they're, they're fresh. They've been watching the game. They've been observing and they have the opportunity to bring all that to first string level for that moment. And they may not stay there all the time, but for that moment and that need, that's where they are. And I think sometimes that's where we get stuck whether it is for ourselves or for other people for whom we are concerned. And might we, might we consider that that quote unquote second string might be actually grateful to be brought in. Maybe they've been sitting there saying, I want to be more useful. I want to be more helpful. And we've been, you know, no, it's okay. Keeping them at arm's length. So maybe we're actually doing something that helps them feel like they can actually participate and make a difference. Great point, Jesse. Great point. Adam, have you experienced any of this uh, within your own journey? Yeah, I certainly have, Becky. And one one thing that I'll say is, were you watching my 49ers play last night? Because they're on their third string quarterback as it happens. And he was phenomenal. He's been great the last couple of weeks here. So, but I, so that point resonates really well with me as a sports fan and I, I feel like for, for me in the relationship aspect, especially when I'm thinking about those on that inner circle, particularly my wife, it is such a challenge. It's incredibly difficult. As, as Jesse mentioned, you know, with her husband and he's got work going on and we're trying to, you know, I mentioned before, read the room, figure out when we could jump in and do these things. I might be having a really challenging day or had a difficult appointment or my symptoms are really ramping up and I'm having a tough time with it. And my wife will come home and maybe she's had a really long and tough day at work. And instead of me kind of getting it all out there, I need to recognize maybe this isn't the time for that. Let's loop back around to it. One other thing that I've found helpful recently is having us set aside some time with other people who do this for a living. I've recently started working with a palliative care team. And it's a topic that I'm going to explore further on my podcast series coming up soon that I hope will be helpful for others. And it's been really helpful for me. It's tough, it's difficult, and it's helpful. And I I think that's been a big thing for me as I continue to work through that with my wife and thinking about my family. And I think a large part of that is also because I, you know, I'm still processing this and I'd be curious to hear what you, you all think about this, but I wonder if I'm really grieving someone else's grief as well, whether it's their primary grief or their secondary losses or, you know, I, I really grapple with that a lot. Sort of like you're a sponge for the grief, Adam. And that yes. is from a clinical standpoint, I'll tell you that that is, um, that's very appropriate. <laughs> I don't know that appropriate's the right word, but it's the first one that comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very normal <clears throat> and it's um, very understandable. And yeah, Frank- and I appreciate that, Becky. Oh, sorry. Very cute. Yeah, it, it reminds me of a quote that I come back to from Brene Brown all the time when she talks about comparative suffering. 
And she says comparative suffering is a bankrupt idea because empathy and compassion are not finite. She says everybody's hurts matter and or everybody's hurt matters. And I I love that so much. It's so important to recognize and see and and feel because, you know, David Kessler says the worst loss is always your loss, right? Like we don't need to get into this comparing mode where we've got all these things going on. Everybody's hurting. Everybody's experiencing these things. Everybody's going through something. We don't need to get into a contest about what is worse or who's got it worse. As we talked about earlier, you mentioned earlier, Becky, with the pandemic examples, that's something that most of us can relate to because we all went through it in some way, shape or form. And when it comes to the mitochondrial disease journey, that's an important thing for me to keep in mind as well and to hold space for my children, to hold space for my wife, to hold space for those in the, you know, in the rest of the community that are navigating through these things. They're going through their hurt as well, and it matters. So how do we come together and support each other through that process? One of the things that you said a moment ago, and I think perhaps can be a thought for us to, to wrap around this entire conversation is the term of palliative care, which is often misunderstood uh, and created only with hospice support. I'm going to jump in for just a quick language update uh, that palliative care is comfort care, which may occur at any place in our journey, our physical journey, our emotional journey, our spiritual journey, whatever it is that is stirring in your life. And I learned recently that the palliative term comes from uh, an Italian word, and I won't dare try to say it right now and spoil uh, the quality that you all have brought to this broadcast, but it means to cloak. And as you were talking about that whole experience, what I was picturing is that large cloak of care that we wrap around others and ourselves to bring us comfort. And we do it in so many ways. And sometimes uh, there are ways that we don't always recognize as being comforting. And so as we bring this conversation to a close for now, one of the things that I think got mentioned briefly and needs to be interjected because somewhere along the way, I think it'll lead to another conversation, are the things that others may see as inappropriate as ways of coping in healthy ways. And so whether it is laughter, whether it is planning something uplifting, whether it is allowing those rays of sunshine in or breaking the clouds a bit for somebody else, I'm reminded of the proverb that says no one can stare at the sun all the time, nor can they stare at grief all the time. Jesse, what has been your experience with it? Oh, that's just so gorgeous. I was just get, trying to write that down. So <laughs> glad this is being recorded because, yeah, I think that that goes back to something that we touched on earlier, which is that there is this expectation, particularly when you're in the throes of it. You know, in, in my religion, we have we sit Shiva. So that's seven days of intense kind of 
uh, assigned morning, right? Like you're not leaving your house. You're not going your job. It's a time out where you are home and visitors come. And so of course the expectation is that you are sad for seven days straight. People come and they go. And one of the things I realized is, you know, you might be talking to somebody and you might smile or you might laugh. And then somebody comes in and this is their first time seeing you. And you immediately have to get that expression of sadness on, even though you weren't feeling that because it is okay. You cannot stare at grief all the time. And it might even be the case that within grief, within thinking about the person and remembering things and hearing new stories and building new memories from what people are telling you, there will be moments of levity and of laughter and of smiles, and that's okay. Right. Adam, a closing thought from you on this topic. Well, I, boy, I think I should probably just not share a closing thought and let the two of you have had last words there because those were fabulous. I'll say on the topic of, of humor, though, that um, one, one thing that I've been trying to lean into a little bit, and I've been in it deep recently here, is I've got an app that'll help me with some meditation or some centering type activities. And it's got some really great points. It's very helpful most of the time. And I'll, I'll tell you that there's, there's times when I'm really in the midst of it. And, you know, there's this nice, calm, soothing voice that'll say something like, you know, I'm trying to fall into sleep or whatever. it's like, set your problems aside. They'll be there tomorrow. And there's times where I'm like, yeah, that's the problem. (laughs) You know, know? don't tell me what to do. Um, And, and there's times where I'm like, oh, I can't believe. And then I'm like, and then I'll laugh about it. I'm like, that's kind of funny. I'm sitting here having a conversation with the voice in my ear that, (laughs) that I've got coming through the headphones. That is really, it's a time when I do sometimes just kind of step back and have a little laugh about it. And yeah, so I think that 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 is an important thing to to recognize. And another, you know, I guess my last little point would be that I've recognized that grief can be so darn hard. And there's just these seemingly normal everyday type tasks that I, you know, used to take for for granted. And those can cause these just unrelenting flurries of grief for me that can be even harder than some of the bigger situations or like I mentioned before, those calendar-based reminders. And my thought process with this doesn't fix or solve any of it. It doesn't make it hurt any less. But I try to remember that grief comes because we love and I wouldn't change love. Yeah. Oh, wow. What, what, what a conclusion. I wouldn't change love. And we know that this is part of that whole heart human experience. And so I thank everyone who has been part of this today, whether you were listening or entering thoughts uh, into the chat area, obviously to Adam and to Jesse for open, profound, wise, sometimes a little snarky and funny, uh, sharing of the most human part of all of us to be born, to love, to lose, and to grieve, and in the midst of that, to grow as human beings, one with another. Thank you very much for all that you have offered. Thank you all so much. I I can't even tell you, you couldn't see my face, but I'm sitting here shaking my head and right. I, I, you know, have not been affected. My family has not been affected by rare disease, but we've been affected by loss. And it's something we all can understand and, 
And I think about, um, you know, a lot of the things that you said, Adam, the last thing you said, that's a conversation I have with my children all the time, right? We grieve because we loved um, and what a gift that is. Um, and, and I thank you for that. We've had a couple of, just a couple of questions. I know we're way over, but this has just been such an important conversation. Um, we, we've had just a couple questions come in. If, if it's okay, we'll, we'll take those and then we'll, we'll close out. So the first question is, I'm a caregiver for my best friend whose mitochondrial disease has recently progressed to her losing so much of her independence. What is the best way I can be here for her? I know how to do the work, but I feel so inadequately prepared to help her with this grief. Can I jump well, in with a with a quote please. here real quick, Becky? Um, and I know you and Jesse've got some probably some wonderful ideas and I you're all going to be shocked, but I, Brené Brown is um, going to be who I talk about once again. And she, I was just reading through an article. So this is a really timely question. And she, she was asked, you know, how long does grief take? And she said, well, as long as it takes, like we're in this culture where people need us to move through the grief for the sake of their own comfort. And grief doesn't have a timeline. It takes as long as it takes. And she said that one of the best things that we can do when we're trying to support somebody who's going through a process or who is grieving the favorite question that she has to ask for someone close to, to her is what does love look like right now? What does support look like right now? And if you're going to ask me that question as somebody who can relate, sometimes it's, Hey, can you help maybe with the kids or could you help with a dinner? Or can I just, you know, call and scream and yell and cry, you know? Um, so that, that quote came to mind, but perhaps Jesse and Becky have a, a better uh, um, answer to the question there. Jesse, go right ahead. I'm taking notes. So I'm just writing, writing that down. Yeah. You know, I, I agree. And I, and I love that. What does, what does love look like right now? And sometimes it's not leaving it to the person to tell you what they need. And so that's hard, right? Because yeah. we want to do for the person and we want to meet their most, uh, you know, important needs, but we also don't want to make them have to think about what they need. Right. And Great so I just made up an idea this very moment, but this is one of your closest friends. Maybe you could make something for this friend that has a whole bunch of cards in it. Uh, I need ice cream. I need a night out. I need you to sit and hold my hand and cry. I All these things. And you could give that deck to the friend. And then the friend doesn't have to kind of magically come up with, I need a grub, a grub hub. I need you to, whatever the thing is can give you the card when you're wondering what, you know, if you don't know exactly, and you're having trouble reading what love looks like right now, what support looks like right now, but you haven't made her come up with this whole universe of things that might be helpful. Just made that yeah, up. I, I would agree with that, Jessica. I would just say like one of the things that for, for my family as we've gone through, you know, different processes of grief and different times is that one of the lessons that I've learned is like, don't say to someone, let me know if you need anything. Oh, it's the worst. Correct. No, just it's do, terrible. right. Just yes. show up and do whatever it is. And it, it may not be the exactly right thing that they would want, but they will appreciate it. And it will mean so much. Um, instead of them. By the way, Kyra, I have a lot of ideas. If there's, we can put those together for people as a resource. Yeah. Because it's maybe, okay, I want to show up and do something, but I don't know what, what to do. What to do. We could put that together. And so people can, can have that as a resource. That would, that be, great. would be a great resource. Yeah. Here's another way to approach the exact same thing you're talking about, but from a little different direction. 
one of the things in any kind of disruption a la loss that affects us is that uh, we feel totally out of control. And we feel like, as it said, the only thing normal about grief is everything's abnormal. So one of the gifts that we can give as a caregiver, friend, support is to find um, what I call a sliver of control that that grieving person can actually do or you can help them do. It's It doesn't make everything right and it doesn't correct or change the situation or bring back what was before. But to feel like there's some little bit of whatever has been normal in my life before this loss, that I can do some little piece of it. So perhaps uh, it's thinking through um, helping that person uh, make sure um, they've got their bills paid. Maybe it's something that physically you can accompany them doing like um you know have um how about if if it's someone who's not physically incapacitated um how about your car you know um do you think you might want to go and and get it tuned up or washed or whatever and make them as allow them the dignity of being part of that process um in your stack of cards that i love uh, jesse that you mm-hmm. But I think we do get caught in the doing for. And one of the things that takes a little more creativity that can be a huge gift to someone who is the, we'll just say the affected person is to feel like there is something that they actually can do, even with some help for themselves or to feel normal. So if you're... uh, providing dinner, maybe bring it over three quarters fixed and let them have a hand in doing it because our pride and dignity of ourselves as being capable just gets hugely whacked when we're dealing with loss. So to bring that part back to them, even in tiny ways, is also a gift. Thank you for that. Um, Last question is, how do we get other loved ones to understand how much grief is impacting us when they think that we can just make a plan and everything will be okay? They are still in denial of the situation. So helping, you know, how to help family members and loved ones understand how significantly your level of grief is impacting you. You can't just move forward, right? Hand them Megan Devine's it's okay. I was going to say, (laughs) that is what I was going to (laughs) say. Sorry, I talked over you, so you might want to repeat it because people might not have heard it. But right, give them the book. Give them Megan Devine's book, How to Carry What Can't Be Carried. And and, uh, there's a workbook. The the workbook is How to Carry What Can't Be And then her actual teaching book uh, is It's Okay That You're Not Okay. But that's what my friend did. The one that I was referencing earlier, ultimately, is just asked her closest people, please read this book. (laughs) And I think that's an important topic to bring up as well. And I'll third that recommendation. It's fabulous. It made a huge difference for me personally. And I love the fact that it's give them the book. Because what I do oftentimes is I feel the pressure, the need to 
consider what's going on with that family member, with that loved one? How are they processing this? What do I need to do in my approach to change how I'm saying what I'm feeling? And I've just gone cross-eyed right now, just thinking about that, right? Like there's, there's a lot of layers there. And so when we can hand that off or give them that resource or provide that to them, hopefully that will be helpful for them and they can take that to heart and use that as a way to be a support for you as well. Absolutely. Thank you. So any, any last closing thoughts before we sign off from anyone? Anyone who has been brave enough and um, emotionally um, sturdy enough to make their way through this whole time together uh, has got a lot of chops and uh, has my highest um, admiration. Uh, This is deep stuff. It's healthy stuff. It's important stuff. It's life stuff, but it's not easy. Absolutely. Thank you all so much, Becky. Thank you for facilitating the conversation with your wisdom and to Adam and Jesse. I, I, the one word that comes to mind when I think of the two of you and how you've navigated this journey is grace. Um, you, you definitely inspire. And despite the darkest times that both of you have been through, and I know because I've, you know, been there to walk with you through some of it is that you always are thinking about how you can take what you're going through and help others. Um, and just, I hope you know how grateful the community is and how lucky we are to have both of you that despite the challenges that you've been through and are going through, that you're always willing to turn that pain into power for our community. So I'm incredibly grateful to both of you and continue to be inspired by your strength. So you're going to make me cry. (laughs) Um, So thank you both so much. Thank you all, all three of you. Um, I just think this was a really important conversation to have at Christmas time because we know a lot of people are struggling. Um, And we just want to make sure that, that this community knows that, you know, we're all going through grief at some level. Um, it's never ending and, and, and you learn to go through it. Um, and you have to allow yourself that grace, right. To go through it and to feel it. Um, and so we hope that, you know, that this community is here for you to support you. Um, and you can always reach out. You don't have to go through this alone. So thank you all so much for joining us today. As I said in opening, this podcast was recorded and it will be available on the MitoAction website and our podcast channels in the coming days. Um, We encourage you to check our website. We'll have all of the resources that we discussed today, links to Jesse's book, links to her podcast. You can access and join Adam in on his podcast um, that he does for MitoAction, Parents is Rare, all any of the men in the community, you can always feel free. You're welcome no matter where you are on your journey. Um, even if it's not with mitochondrial disease, but you're going through a rare disease, you're challenged, you're, you know, you're having challenges. I would encourage you to join Adam on the men's support group. It really is an inspiring and, ins- and a safe time, right? Because we expect our men to be strong all the time. Um, and so it's important that we have that that support for you. Um, And Adam does an incredible job of providing that for this community. And Becky, thank you so much again. um, We wish you all the happiest of holidays. We hope you have a wonderful time with some time off with your family. And we look forward to joining you again in the new year. So until next time, everyone, thank you.